Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The sun used to shine. The sun used to shine while we two walked, slowly together, paused and started again, and sometimes mused, sometimes talked, as either pleased and cheerfully parted. Each night we never disagreed which gate to rest on, the to be and the late past we gave small heed. We turned from men or poetry to rumours of the war remote only till both stood disinclined for aught but the yellow, flavorous coat of an apple wasps had undermined, or a century of dark betonies, the stateliest of small flowers on earth, at the forest verge, or crocuses, pale purple as if they had their birth in sunless Hades fields. The war came back to mind with the moonrise, which soldiers in the east afar beheld then, nevertheless, our eyes could as well imagine the Crusades or Caesar's battles, everything to faintness like those rumours fades, like the brook's water glittering under the moonlight, like those walks now, like us too that took them, and the fallen apples, all the talks and silences, like memory sand, when the tide covers it late or soon, and other men through other flowers in those fields under the same moon go talking and have easy hours. Lovely. Welcome back to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations. Well-known books presented by me, Lloyd Shepherd, and you, Tim Wright. Tim Wright. We're talking about Edward Thomas. That was a poem. That was a poem. By Edward Thomas. <laughs> well, is it a poem or is it simply prose broken up? We're doing um, his book from 1913 called In Pursuit of Spring. Actually, it was published in 1914. We should be very careful about that. But he, he wrote it in 1913, describes a journey he took in 1913. That's right. And it's a description of a journey from Clapham all the way to the Quantocks by bike. The reason it's significant is it's the book that Robert Frost, his great friend, 
showed that he had the power to be a poet because he was already writing poetry, he was just doing it in prose form. There you are, you see, that's what I'm saying. Was it a poem or was it just another bit of prose? Well, we should try writing it out as a prose and see if it, see oh, if it, wo- see if it works as prose, <laughs> see if it works both ways. <laughs> in the first episode, we followed Edward Thomas down from uh, Clapham and we had reached Dundridge Station. Uh, he's taken a train to Salisbury to spend the night yep. for a bit of a kip. We also discussed his biography and uh, poet wars, yes. the great wars of the poets of the Imagists versus the Georgians of 1913. In part two, we're going to continue our journey uh, down to the Quantocks. Uh, we're going to go through a place called Rudge. Uh, we're going to go through Glastonbury, interesting place, Netherstowey, Kilve, and Cothelstone Hill. Yes, with all the fantastic view. Yeah. Honestly, listener. This is a terrific journey. I recommend it. It's, it th- these are places I've never been before, but I would say if you, it's one of the books where I'd say actually the journey is so much part of enjoying the book. Well, also enjoying his poetry. I wasn't, I didn't know much about Edward Thomas. I never studied Edward Thomas as a poet. Great way to get in, Im- immerse yourself in a poet yes. is to take a journey like this. Yes. I'm also looking forward to shoehorning Sid James in. I beg your pardon. So we'll find out more about that. But uh, for now, uh, you you join us in... Sid James isn't a poet. (laughs) You join us in in a village called Rudge. So I came, well warmed, to Rudge, a hamlet collected about a meeting of roads and scattered up a steep hill along one of these roads. The collection includes a small inn called the Half Moon, a plain Baptist chapel, several stone cottages, several ruins, solid but roofless, used solely to advertise sails, and a signpost pointing to Barclay and Frome, past the ruined cottages, to Westbury and Bradley downhill from the inn, through the woods above the River Biss, and uphill to Road and Beckington. Southward, I saw the single bare hump of Clay Hill five miles away near Warminster. Northward, the broad wooded vale rising up to hills on the horizon. I went uphill between two bright trickles of water. We're standing outside the full moon. Yes, so he's he's one of his few pub inaccuracies. I have to say, yesterday we were driving through using the book as a guide, as we do. Yeah. And it mentions every pub in every village, doesn't it? And I would say he had a hit rate of about 90%. He was he? doing very well. He's yeah. also misspent, misspelt road, I noticed, in this. Oh, has he? Misspelt What's it R-O-A-D. And it's R-O-D-E. Ah. But we're standing at the junction of three roads in uh, Rudge. There three is roads indeed in Rudge. a rather lovely old sign to Barclay, Frome, Beckington Road, North Bradley and Westbury. Yes. Uh, it's opposite a, a Baptist chapel that's been converted into a house. Yeah. Um, if you go up the hill, there is a Wesleyan chapel that's also been converted into a house. Um, it's early on a Saturday morning. We're well rested. We had a nice night in the wool pack. We in did. Beckington. Yes, in Beckington. Quite near um, the Frome River and a weir, which is significant, I feel. Well, this whole section is very odd, isn't it? Yes. We're very... We're very there's something odd going on here. Let me try and explain, listener, what we, what, why we're confused. He, the previous night, he seems to 
end up in a play in North Bradley. He claims, that, yes, he, he doesn't sort of, say that. No, he just stops. He just stops talking. there. He's, he's he just he names some houses and then he stops. And then then he does a whole chapter on um, the Wessex poets. Yeah, that's just uh, not relevant to well, anywhere he's, just, he's going. He obviously wrote that before. And then it's the next day, and he's just cycling. He doesn't he's get, here. Well, he doesn't get to ride until 11 o'clock. And yeah. he's up at about 7 or 8. He's had a late, he's had a lion. He just seems to be pottering around in this whole locale. Yeah. He ends up at Trowbridge, which is about he 3 miles away. He goes back to North Bradley. Trowbridge. Back, well, he's at Trowbridge at 4 o'clock. Yeah, so he spends the whole day. He spends day. the whole day pottering around here. What's going on? What's he up to and why can't he tell us? Well, and also because he's going in the opposite direction... To where he wants to, where he to was. be, to he Shepton Mallet and the Quantocks. We did say, uh, didn't we, that he's not on his own on yeah. his journey. No, and he's we're not a, talking about the other man. No, we're talking about his brothers with him for some of it. We yeah. don't know how much, quite how much, but other people join him. Yeah. Um, so our speculation was yesterday that he was staying the night with friends. Oh, with in benefits. A, in a, <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a literary podcast. Sorry. I ask you to take it seriously. Sorry. We are, he's staying with friends yeah. in North Bradley. Yes. Uh, and he spends the day with them, basically, pottering around here. Yes. But the fact that it takes him so long to get to Rudge, he's had a bit of a lie-in, which led, of course, you and your salacious consciousness... Well, he doesn't say where he stayed the night, does to he? ...to come up with, the, he hasn't with said. the idea that perhaps he's been staying with a lady friend. Yes. That's why it's Which called I, In Pursuit of Spring. Spring has sprung. <laughs> Something sprung. In, in Pursuit of Bed Springs. <laughs> That's what it was called. Something sprung last night. So, so um, I, I quite like that. I quite like the idea that he stops off for a bit of... Uh, uh, How's your father? And, a bit, and then a bit of a cycles it off. <laughs> chase himself out. Take and, me, and and the whole the book again. changes in, if, you, if you say that he's gone off on a bike ride to stop off at various places <laughs> to visit to visit people, right? Yes. You've got a poem for us? Yes, I've got one about him uh, going to bed. Okay, very good. So we're gonna, <laughs> but not like that. We'll let you, we'll let you read that. No, I then... think because we had a very nice sleep last night, didn't we? We did have a nice sleep. And I it? did wake up to the sound, I think, of a chiff-chaff oh, and fantastic. lots of wood pigeons. I do snore like a chiff-chaff. And he does say that he slept somewhere near near the sound of the weir from yeah. River Frome, which would mean he'd either be in road or where we were. That's I right. Would say. He could have been staying where we were. Yeah, but of course, uh, it's more likely to be road because he loves yeah. road. He does love road. <laughs> I kind of quite like the idea that he's got a bit of a lady friend in road. Anyway, we lights out. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely, that's the name of the poem. All right, lights out. Lights out. Lights out, darling. I have come to the border of sleep, the unfathomable deep forest where all must lose their way, however straight, or winding soon or late, they cannot choose. Many a road and track that since the dawn's first crack up to the forest brink deceived the travellers, suddenly now blurs and in they sink. Here love ends, despair, ambition ends. All pleasure and all trouble, although most sweet or bitter, here ends in sleep that is sweeter than tasks most noble. There is not any book or face of dearest look that I would not turn from now to go into the unknown. I must enter and leave alone, I know not how. The tall forest towers, its cloudy foliage lowers, a head 
shelf above shelf. Its silence I hear and obey, that I may lose my way and myself. I went into Father's study to, to, to see him, and uh, just as I opened the door, there was Edward standing in the door by the bookshelf, very tall, very good-looking, and very shy and reserved, and uh, we shook hands. And um, I remember very well indeed that he shook my hand very firmly and hard, and I liked that, and I thought, well, yes. You look rather perhaps shy and uh, timid, but uh, you, you don't shake hands as if you were uh, at all flabby. And I stayed there and listened to Father and Edward talking, and then left them. And he came several times, and every time that he came, I was attracted by him. I went into the study to join in the talk, which was all about books, of course, and writing. So this book was composed in 1913, and we're going to talk a little bit about the context for that. Well, we're breaking the rules. We normally discuss the year the book is published. That's right. Uh, and in this the world it came out into, but we've decided not to do that, haven't we? Yes, uh, partly because 1914 is obviously so dominated by the war, but also we thought it was important to talk... Uh, Thomas is experiencing the world in 1913, so we thought it was interesting to talk about that world. Yeah. It's set up quite well, I think, by... Uh, Matthew Hollis in his excellent biography. I don't of see wh Thomas. why don't you just get Matthew now Hollis to come on this podcast? Do you always with say you? this when I like something. So why don't you just get married? <laughs> God, this is what he says about 1913. These were unsettling times in England. The cost of living was soaring, and trade union membership had rocketed in recent years. The political left had anticipated strikes, even riots, as the Liberal government and the Conservative courts undermined the legal standing and protection of the unions. Suffragettes were taking up direct action, breaking shop windows, starting letterbox fires, defacing public artworks, chaining themselves to railings. Some went on hunger strike in prison and were subjected to brutal force-feeding. Women did not have the vote, nor did men who were without property. Irish home rule dominated debate at Westminster. The predominantly Catholic South urgently wanted to see it implemented, while the mainly Protestant North just as vehemently wished to block any measure of independence. Absolutely none of that in Edward Thomas's Nothing imagination. Nothing whatsoever about think? that in the book. No. He actually goes past a factory at some point on his bike and just mentions the, the, that he can just see a few women working in the factory. He does. He does. Um, and he mentions that, another factory that's been closed down. That's, he's really not engaged the other, in I mean, that. Weird. I mean, the suffragette stuff, it's all happening in 1913. Yes. There is actually an attack on a house built for Lloyd George oh, at Walton Heath Golf Club. Okay, because Lloyd George was a friend of Edward Thomas' father, father, right? Yeah. Yeah. Emmeline Pankhurst was sentenced to three years penal servitude in 1913. Neville's cricket ground in Tunbridge Wells was burned down by suffragettes. It's an outrage. Outrageous. The one I noticed, though, was that uh, the tragic story of Emily Davison, mm. who was the woman who ran out in front of the horses yes. at the Epsom Derby on the 4th of June. Oh, well, we no, just he, had a He cycles through Epsom. Oh, yes, he did. So a couple of, a couple of months after he cycles through Epsom is when she's, she's running out in front of the... Uh, uh, what else did you have? I want to talk about yet more poetry, because 1913 is the time when the Poet Laureate died. And then there's a new Poet Laureate. Right. So um, that could have been quite a big moment for poetry. Yeah. 
but somehow, <laughs> somehow wasn't. I've never heard of Alfred Austin. Have you heard of him? I haven't heard of Alfred Austin. So no. Alfred Austin was the poet laureate who died in 1913. Did he take over from Tennyson then? Well, this is the thing, is that after Tennyson's death in 1892, it was deemed that there was nobody of sufficient distinction to succeed Tennyson. Right. So they didn't appoint one to start with. Right. And then um, it took a few a while, I think four years or something, before they decided to give it to this guy, Alfred Austin, right. because William Morris didn't want it, and then no one else was sufficiently good. Oh. And this guy was just basically a friend of the Prime Minister, as far as I could tell. And he'd written a book once called The Poetry of the Period. And it, oh, he, In fact, he'd, he'd made a lot of money, and then he'd retired. He was known as Banjo Byron. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. The ungrateful little swine is that basically he uh, he managed to say about uh, Tennyson in memoriam, one of the great English poems, will assuredly be handed over to the dust when a generation arises that has come to its senses. Oh, blimey. Yeah, okay. So you're dissing Tennyson. Alfred Austin, who uh, we've never yeah, heard we, of. Yeah, who we've never heard of. He has of. been handed so over to the dust. So then he died. And then he took over. Who took over? Robert Bridges. Yeah. So Robert Bridges is suddenly poet laureate in 1913. Now Robert Bridges is not a Georgian or, or an imagist. Or an imagist. He's his own guy. Yeah. No, actually, he's quite. He was a medic. He was a doctor. Yeah. And, and in fact, I believe he's the only uh, poet laureate who's got a medical degree. Who ever had a medical degree? Okay. Uh, and his big thing, I love this, and because he's he's he's, he's a scientist, right? He decides that in this business of cadence and uh, prosody, yeah. that um, that he would take an empirical approach to examining the use of blank verse by just simply counting up syllables. So in, in free verse, he basically it didn't matter about the emphasis of them. Yeah, it was just the number of syllables. Yeah, and that he would write long poems with a set number of syllables in each oh, line. God. I looked up the syllabic technique, and it says. The syllabic technique does not, in English, convey a metrical rhythm. Rather, it is a compositional device, primarily of importance to the author, perhaps noticed by the alert reader and imperceptible to the hearer. So I love a that. Complete primarily waste of, of time. importance to the author. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Some great births this year. Yes. Interestingly, uh, R.S. Thomas was born in 1913. He the was great Welsh poet. The great Welsh poet, or uh, one of the great Welsh poets, let's say that. Michael Foote, yep. born in 1913. Peter Cushing, ooh, Bill Shankly, yes, talk about him, yes, Trevor Howard and Vivian Lee, ooh, uh, and of course, the previously promised Sid James, born in nineteen thirteen. Yeah, 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 bah, yeah, bah, yeah, bah, yeah, bah, yeah, bah, yeah. Bah. I've only got one more. Th- oh, Sons and Lovers was published. We talked about that in, earlier on. Yes, uh, great book. Lawrence. Yeah, I didn't find a great deal of other novels being published that year that were of note. Oh was a, are, are, you, are you crazy? Well, are on. you crazy? Go on. God, you're so English. Oh, okay. Go on then. Swan's Way was published. The first part of <sighs> A la recherche du temps perdu by Proust. And also that. Le Grand Moon by Alain Fournier, which is another great French novel. It's a novel. short story, isn't it? And uh, Apollinaire's poetry was published. So in France, it's all kicking off, mate. Yeah, well. 
And you, you didn't even notice. No, I don't care about that. And French. Edward Thomas didn't notice either, Edward did he? Edward Thomas didn't notice. I was too busy focusing on the big news from 1913. Yeah. When we were driving down to uh, the Quantox, I had with me a rather fine large packet of co-op salt and vinegar crisps Ooh. that I was munching from as we went. In 1913, Carter's Crisps of London introduced commercial manufacture of crisps. Oh, so it was yes. a big, big year for me. So that tells you something, doesn't it? Edward me. Thomas didn't have any crisps with him he on had his no bike rides, which no. is quite bad, isn't he it? He could have been much better. He would have had a diff- very different journey if he'd had crisps with him. Yeah, I think that's probably right. In terms of a gar- you know, of so food... So you've got Swan's Way, I've got crisps. You know, <laughs> the, the listener can make their own judgment about which was the more impactful on culture. Well, the other, the other great book that was published is, is um, uh, by a friend of Edward Thomas, uh, which is Peacock Pie. Walter de la Mer. Walter, yeah, children's verse. Mm. And I'm going to give you a little reading of one of the great poems of Walter de la Mer. Future Crisps. 1913. Uh-huh. Poor tired Tim, it's sad for him. He lags the long bright morning through, ever so tired of nothing to do. He moons and mopes the live long day, nothing to think about, nothing to say. Up to bed, with his candle to creep, too tired to yawn, too tired to sleep. Poor tired Tim, it's sad for him. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
After all, I did go through the turnstile to see the abbey. The high pointed arches were magnificent, the turf under them perfect. The elms stood among the ruins like noble savages among Greeks. The orchards hard by made me wish that they were blossoming, but excavations had been going on. Clay was piled up and cracking in the sun, and there were tin sheds and scaffolding. I am not an archaeologist, and I left it. As I was approaching the turnstile, an old hawthorn within a few yards of it against a south wall drew my attention, for it was covered with young green leaves and with bright crimson berries almost as numerous. Going up to look more closely, I saw what was more wonderful, blossom. Not one flower, nor one spray only, but several sprays. I had not up till now seen even blackthorn flowers, though towards the end of February I had heard of hawthorn flowering near Bradford. As this had not been picked, I conceitedly drew the conclusion that it had not been observed. Perhaps its conspicuousness had saved it. It was Lady Day. I had found the spring in that bush of green, white and crimson. He's found spring. He's found spring. We haven't. Well, curious, isn't it? So we are we are sitting in the grounds of Glastonbury Abbey. It's my first time here. It's stunning. It's stupendous. Mm, beautiful, uh, bright, clear day today. Electric blue sky, electric green lawns. Glastonbury Tor rising up behind us. And sandy stone coloured. The walls of the uh, of St Dunstan's Abbey. Yeah. You know, you can still you can get a very good sense of how huge it must have been. Yes. Very beautiful grounds. We're struggling a little bit to find this hawthorn. The west wall is where the current turnstile is, and there's no hawthorn on that wall. No. So we've come to what is the south wall, and there's like a wall of evergreen on it. There's no hawthorn. There's some nice little blossoms on it. There Pretty, are some little blossoms. Not hawthorn. There may have been a turnstile in the southwest corner back in the day, because we've just seen somebody come in that way, like a member of staff has driven in that way. Nice. So um, it's all a bit... It's a bit disappointing in terms of the book. It's well, not disappointing in terms of the experience of being here. It's absolutely wonderful. Well, you know what I was saying to you? that, it, that This is reminding me a little bit of uh, Rings of Saturn by W.G. Sebald, yeah. which is another po- podcast we've done, listener, if you might want to listen to. It's another man wandering around, supposedly on his own, uh, avoiding his family. In real time. Yeah, in real time, avoiding his family, rambling around the place in search of who knows what. And what we found about W.G. Seabold is he has no idea of what the difference between his left and his right, <laughs> does he? And now we're saying Edward Thomas doesn't know his south from his west. Yeah. Well, so we would like it to be against the west wall, and we're just going to assume they've dug the Hawthorne up at some point since 1930. Well, there were excavations going on. The archaeologist. The archaeologist. weird archaeologist. He mentions a weird archaeologist. Well, he, might, he just says an archaeologist. I said weird, because okay. he is weird. Do you, you know, want to weird. hear this story? Do you, know, do you know about this guy, then? Yes. I looked it up. Well, I wanted to see... Was he looking in for Arthur's remains? In were there excavations going on here? Yeah. The answer is yes. Okay. In 1907, I'm getting this from GlastonburyAbbey.com, by the way. Right. In 1907, the ruins and neighbouring abbey house were sold at public auction, auction, and the whole property was bought by Ernest Jardine from Nottingham. What, this was sold? Who? Yes. Yes. It was sold? And it was bought by Ernest Jardine from Nottingham who offered it to the Church of England at cost price. Right. Well, that's quite good, isn't it? Now, interestingly, Why didn't the, Church of England the funds the were raised place? by 1909, and on June the 22nd, 1909, 
the Prince and Princess of Wales visited to celebrate the restoration of the Abbey. Right. So only four years before he was here, yeah. Prince of Wales was here, uh, celebrating it. And in acquiring the site, the Trust appointed Frederick Bly Bond to direct an archaeological investigation. This guy. Bond discovered the Edgar Chapel, the North Porch and St Dunstan's Chapel. So he found all those right, things. Right, which is we see the outline of However, relations in. with his employers turned sour when he revealed in his 1919 book, so excavations going on all throughout this right. time, I must have stopped during the war, I guess, that he had made many of his interpretations in collaboration with a psychic medium. <laughs> he was dismissed by Bishop Armitage Robinson in 1921 because of his use of seances and psychic archaeology. <laughs> Well, which we are, I believe he was the inventor of psychic archaeology. We are in Glastonbury. And he's remembered as the man who galvanised our cultural understanding of Glastonbury. Apparently, the bishop took against it when he found him wandering around here with a load of dowsing sticks. So you're on a site where psychic archaeology was invented. It's still a term that people use. So all the kind of, all the kind of um, the supernatural guff and occult guff that surrounds the abbey and the surrounding streets. Guff's a strong word. Guff's entirely appropriate in this instance. <laughs> He's the sort of is he the is he the mother load for that or were they all here already in 1909? I don't know the answers to that because they're, they're hippie shops who are, I don't know when they started those when when everybody gathered extraordinary here. number of hippie I would shops. I think this would be it must have been when the first festival happened, wasn't it? They all started around here, which was in the 60s. Right? Well, yeah, but the first festival had that vibe already. It's like they inherited the vibe from somewhere. So they were already here. The people were already here. They've always been here. They've always been here. The first shop you see when you drive in to the high street from the uh, from the top of the hill is called Bag End, and it gets worse from there. It's not your town, is it? No, I prefer it in Bradford. I preferred the uh, man reading Bradshaws. In Bradford and in Avon. Bradford upon Avon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the the bridges, the factories, the stone, the, the, industry, the industry, the unemployment. I'm not having all this, <laughs> all this woo woo. The unemployment. <laughs> the, the poor workers' what, rights. You think those hippies out there the, are working? The pollution. You think you, you think they've got jobs? Man, never work. <laughs> jamais, jamais travailler. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. I've got trust fund. I'm, I'm, what I want to do is learn more about psychic archaeology. That you have a séance to decide where to dig. That's a cool idea. Is it? I quite like that idea. Do you? I do. Right. Yeah. But in the meantime, let's just fade out to birdsong. And let's behind us, look, you can see the sun on new green buds and blossoms yeah. on a south wall. And that's the real thing. We have kind of found it. Owls have awakened the crowing cock. Twit, to woo. And hark again the crowing cock, how drowsily it crew. Celialine the barren rich, hath a toothless mastiff bitch. From her kennel beneath the rock, she maketh answer to the clock. Four for the quarters and twelve for the hour, ever and I by shine and shower. Sixteen short howls, not over loud. Some say she sees my lady 
shroud. In the, is the night chilly and dark? The night is chilly, but not dark. The thin grey cloud is spread on high. It covers, but not hides the sky. The moon is behind and at the full, and yet she looks both small and dull. The night is chill, the cloud is grey. Tis a month before the month of May, and the spring comes slowly up this way. The lovely lady Christabel, whom her father loves so well, what makes her in the wood so late, a furlong from the castle gate? She had dreams all yesternight of her own betrothed knight, and she in the midnight wood will pray for the wheel of a lover that's far away. <laughs> well, did you, did you enjoy that? I did. I enjoyed your second bird impression. <laughs> to wit, to woo. Is that um, is that a meadow pipit? We are standing by the house where that poem was composed. Yes. It's quite exciting, isn't it? Well, as Edward Thomas says, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, he's not impressed, place. He? He's not impressed. No, he's we're not in, that bothered. We're in Nether Stowey, yeah. outside Coleridge's cottage, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, obviously the author of Christabel, Yeah, where that excellent reading came from. It was very poetic. Um, opposite a pub. Obviously, this is where he got the idea for his poem, right? Because it's opposite the pub called The Ancient Mariner. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> Just looked out the window. I thought you made it up. Like most writers do. <laughs> you were nearly there, mate. We're nearly at our destination. Yeah. Uh, what does he say about this place? He says, Altogether, Nether Stowey offered no temptations to be compared with those of the road leading out of it. <laughs> He's not happy about it. He says, look, he says here, The association of Nether Stowey was hardly needed to no. summon up Coleridge. He just needed you there, really. No. That's he right. said, the mere imagination of what these banks would be like when the honeysuckle was in flower was enough to suggest the poet. I became fantastic and said to myself that the honeysuckle was worthy to provide the honeydew for the nourishing his genius, even that its magic might have touched that genius to life, which is absurd. For I have dined on honeydew and drunk the milk of paradise. Not the words of Samuel Taylor Coleridge. No. The words of Neil Peart. <laughs> so we didn't need to come here. Okay. And, we, and also, but we just needed your rendition. I'm glad we did, though. Um, there is one thing about this cottage and this place that I think he might have been thinking about in 1913. Right. He might have been thinking about pantisocracy. Pantisocracy, yes. Which is Coleridge's uh, big idea, right? His big the... idea. A utopian scheme devised in 1794 yeah. by Coleridge and Robert Southey yeah. for an egalitarian community. They were going to go off to the United States. They were. Choosing a site on the banks of the Susquehanna River in Kentucky. But by, by 1795, basically a year later, Southey had doubts about the viability of this idea yeah, yeah. and proposed moving the project to Wales. Yeah. And the two men couldn't agree because... Uh, Coleridge felt it was a bit of a sellout if he went to Wales instead of going to America. So they couldn't agree. Basically, Coleridge didn't want to go and live in Wales. You know, <laughs> they fell out. Okay. Yeah. So we're going to combine rating and dating this time, aren't we? Because the dating's pretty straightforward. 
Well, he gives us all the dates that we need, really, in the book. I mean, yes, it starts he... on March the 23rd? 21st. 21st. Good Friday. Good Friday. 1913. Uh, and it finishes... It's the 28th of March. It's Friday the 28th of so it March. It takes him a week. Yes. Well, allegedly. Well. The, so this the... is where we come to the marking thing. The marking thing is he's, he's, he's obviously crowbarring in stuff either that he's got from other places. I mean, there's that weird story about the sisters living in the woods that he obviously takes from something else he's been working on. You talked very well on the road about him uh, hitting the word count with lists of pub names and all that kind of stuff. There's that weird episode that we found around Rudge and North Bradley when he just goes on a weird circuit. He doesn't need to do that day at all. Yeah. Well, looking back on it, I wonder actually if that was a previous trip or another trip altogether. He just just added in to get to his word count. Yeah. Um, He stops at a lot of churchyards as well. He does. And we didn't check those. No. We only, I think we only went into one churchyard, yeah. actually. Because well, we, he, he writes down, again, a lot of filler. He writes a down lot a of lot filler. of gravestone stuff. A lot of filler. So in terms of his curiously specificness on dating mm. and places, the thing I would say about it is you can do the journey. Yes. You have that weird loop in the middle, but you can do the journey. Well, I was sitting in the passenger seat reading out excerpts from the book as you, you did all the driving, which yeah. is amazing. It was quite funny how you know you turned a corner and there was the pub or there was the sewage well, there, works there was or, one moment when you said there should be a sewage works up here and literally as you said it the sewage works sprung into life it was like he was manifesting all these things to life so he was really accurate about that kind of stuff about yeah. where pubs were in terms of stuff I so, like that about him so I, he's got to have a high score for this surely I mean that's the whole point if I was giving my artistic judgment mark for him I'd have to also say so is the is the poetry coming out of the place and, and the journey? And I think it is. So I'm going to give him, overall, I think if I did, didn't know he was a poet mm. and I didn't go on the, I didn't follow the route and be out in the landscape, I'd give him quite a low mark for this because it's quite a, it's a quite hefty read, isn't it? And it's, oh, for the artistic achievement? Yeah, yeah. I'd probably give him something like a five. Well, I think the... But um, actually, I think I'm going to go as high as an eight. What, because of the poetry? Well, because of what comes out of this book, yeah. both in terms of the journey and then the poetry. The consensus view on In Pursuit of Spring is that it's not a particularly good book no. in itself. It's quite trudgy in places. The, yeah. the, the, the essays on poets, the George Meredith section, the bits about the, um, the Wessex poets are just kind of, they're, not, they're quite stodgy. Yeah. There's a lot of filler, as we've said. Well, so, and then also when he tries to be sort of a bit more sort of chatty and casual about things like clay pipes or my waterproofs oh. or stuff, he's so boring. He's so boring. He's boring about costs of hotels. He's really boring about clay pipes. I mean, oh, my days. <laughs> I, I would say something like half this book is just kind of of little or no consequence. <laughs> uh, but then, as you say, there are the kind of there are nuggets of gold to be mined, and he mines them himself as a, as a poet yeah. later on. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't give it an eight because it's just it's just not a great. I mean, I'd go six. I think. Okay, I'm going to downgrade to a seven then. Yeah, it's just not. Yeah, because I'm thinking about other books we recommend. It's a great experience. It's it, not a great read. That's true. Um, that's true. In terms of accuracy on locations, I think you have to give him a nine. Yes, he only got one pub name wrong, got, and, we, and they may have changed the name of the pub. We got don't half know. moon to full moon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Other than that, it was all good. So, you know. so I'm giving him a nine and a six. A nine and a six. That's Fifteen. Good. Yeah. So I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him a seven, and I'm going to give him an eight because of that 
stupid day for uh, <laughs> cycle Rudge. between Rudge and Holt, where he's just going round and round in circles, yeah. sort of avoiding Trowbridge somehow, yeah. or, or you know, and it's got no point to it at all, and therefore is I feel made up. He didn't yeah. do that then. He wasn't pursuing spring at the time. He was pursuing something potentially, yeah, and uh, and therefore. Uh, that has to be a demerit because okay. uh, that's misleading. So we both have given him 15 in total, but via different routes. That's right. Uh, so very good. Yes. Uh, so we're going to finish off now. Uh, we've got two more locations to go to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go uh, to a. Uh, we're going to finish off on a place called uh, Cotherston Hill, up in the Quantocks. But before we get there, we're actually going to the beach. Hurrah! We're in search of the meadow pipit. Yeah, in search of the I meadow believe. pipit. But then actually what we found was an oil rig. <laughs> Very surprising. The dim sea glints chill. The white sun is shy. And the skeleton weeds and the never dry, rough, long grasses keep white with frost at the hilltop by the finger post. The smoke of the traveller's joy is puffed over hawthorn berry and hazel tuft. I read the sign. Which way shall I go? A voice says, you would not have doubted so at twenty. Another voice, gentle with scorn, says, at twenty you wished you had never been born. It's good, but it wasn't as good as my Christabel. Well, I think there was more cadence. Well, there was certainly good sound effects. There, definitely. We're not adding the sound effects, listener. We are sitting on Kilve Beach. We've made it. We've made it. Shall I read the bit from the book? You should. Describing where this we are. This is the furthest we go, isn't it? The running water led me seaward through a tangled thicket of scrub oak, gorse and bramble, filled in with teasel and burdock and through a small marshy flag bed. A low cliff pierced by the stream separates the beach from the rough, undulating, briary pasture. This cliff of sand and rock gave me shelter from the wind. The flat grey pebbles gave me a seat, and I looked out to sea. A ragged sky hung threatening over a sea that was placid but corrugated, and of the colour of slate, having a margin of black at the horizon. The water was hardly distinguishable, save by its motion, from the broad beach of grey pools, blackened pebbles, and low rock edges. That's pretty good, isn't it? We're sitting on Kilve Beach, which is the beach as described, which is uh, it's not quite the end of his journey. There's one more place he has to go, and we're going there in a bit. But this is nearly the end of his journey. It's certainly the furthest west he goes. It's amazing. Uh, foothills of the Quantocks yeah. on the Bristol Channel. I can look and see... The land of my fathers, Tim. Manchester. Cymru. Um, and to my right, I can see an oil rig, well, which I wasn't expecting to see. Well, and you should have been. Sitting on, and, and actually, the rocks we're sitting on is a shale formation, right? Yes. So big, big boulders separated by, um, by black rock. Uh, and you've just given me a little bit of a geology lesson. I have. Because you, you told me that that's evidence of oil. The black stuff in there, yeah. yeah. Shale. Well, shale oil. Shale. So, um, you've got an oil rig there, you've yeah. got shale oil there. Edward Thomas, I sense, is no geologist, He's as he is no archaeologist. Or industrialist. Because 
when uh, Dr. Forbes Leslie came down here in 1914, no, sorry, 1912, a, well, year, a before, year before Edward, what he saw was not poetry or he spring. He saw money. He saw money. <laughs> At Kill, Forbes Leslie sought to establish Shayline Limited, a limited company with a capital of a million and a half pounds chaired by the Duke of Atoll. The company planned to erect crude oil works at Kilv, build an 11-mile-long light railway connecting Kilv with Bridgewater and constructing an oil refinery and dock at Coomwich. Uh, the plan, planning permission went on till mid-1924, subject to local consultation. Ten years. Yeah, no evidence has yet been found that Shayline Limited was ever launched as a public company. Company public stories suggested that oil shay was discovered. Oh, sorry, at 1914, and that by 1921 various bores had been sunk. Forbes led his operations, but the, this guy he ended up in prison okay. for fraud. Well, what we're saying here is sometimes people say about Edward Thomas that he's one of the early poets of the of environmentalism because yeah. of his deep love of nature and inspection yeah. of landscape, and also about the changing landscape. If he comes down here, he has no idea. I don't think you can be a poet of environmentalism unless you're aware of the alternatives and the threats, can you? Otherwise would, you're just describing the world. I would have thought so. Yeah. But anyway, so he didn't see, he didn't smell oil down here, and he didn't smell the danger. No. That it was going to have. That oil That's was odd, going, isn't it? Oil was going to ruin the beaches and also ruin his roads. Moved. Come down to battery. Away from us. We had a chiff chaff. Oh. What a glorious place we've come to. We're at the top of what is known as Cothelston Hill, but also Seven Sisters. Yeah, the Ring of Trees is the Seven Sisters. Yes. And it's at the top of Cothelston Hill. You're right at the top of the Quantocks. And you can see for miles all around. In every you. single direction. Yep. I don't think I've seen a view like this in England before. That, that gives you a 360. Yeah, it's pretty much a 360. The Bristol Channel. Look, there's a little bird there on the grass hump in front of you that's come to say hello. Yeah. It's very warbler-esque. No isn't it? idea what that is. You think it's a warbler? LBJ, little brown job. Yeah, that's it. Okay, well, I'm going to read you the end of the book, and the you can end. read me a poem. I had found winter's grave. I had found spring, and I was confident that I could ride home again and find spring all along the road. Perhaps I should hear the cuckoo by the time I was again at the Avon and see cowslips tall on ditch sides and short on chalk slopes, blue bells in all hazel copses, orcases? Orcases. Orcases everywhere in the lengthening grass and flowers of rosemary and crown imperial in cottage gardens and in the streets of London, cowslips, blue bells and the unflower-like yellow-green spurge. Thus... I leapt over April and into May as I sat in the sun on the north side of Cothelston Hill on the 28th of de day of March, the last day of my journey westward to find the spring. Marvellous. So we're here.
We've come exactly greeted by the a chaffinch, a chiff chaff. Yeah. How fantastic, hey? Yeah. And the the gorse has come in, in bloom. There's it lots is. of sort of golden gorse, some very windswept old trees here with just a little bit of leaf coming out. And we're looking south right here. Yes, we're looking south. So off to the right, you can start to, you're going back down towards the sea there, aren't yep. you? Um, it's a lovely uh, spring day with white fluffy clouds that you feel you could almost reach your hand up and touch them. It's going all over onto the and horizon. you can just see for miles and miles and miles patchworks of green and brown. It's really amazing. It's nice to hear you waxing so rhapsodical there. Thank you very much. And yet, it causes Edward Thomas a problem, this kind of beauty. (laughs) He can't just enjoy it, can he? Let me read you bits of the glory. Okay. The glory of the beauty of the morning, the cuckoo crying over the untouched dew, the blackbird that has found it, and the dove that tempts me on to something sweeter than love. White clouds ranged even and fair as new-mown hay, the heat, the stir, the sublime vacancy of sky and meadow and forest and my own heart. The glory invites me, yet it leaves me scorning all I can ever do, all I can be. And then he goes on. <laughs> he's, not, he's not one for a silver lining, is he? Must I be content with discontent, as larks and swallows are perhaps with wings? And shall I ask at the day's end once more what beauty is and what I can have meant by happiness? And shall I let all go, glad, weary, or both? Or shall I perhaps know that I was happy oft and oft before, a while forgetting how I am fast pent, how dreary swift with naught to travel to is time. I cannot bite the day to the core. Hmm. He does sound like he's got depression, right? He's not well. I cannot bite the day to the core. Mm. Sounds like someone saying, I can't experience this. I can't be at one with it. I can't be in it. I can't be really in it. It's not landing with me the way it lands with other people. Well, I don't know. Is anybody landing it? I don't know. don't know. Well, is that his poet? Is that the thing that he's saying that poets can? And if he can't quite get there, then he's not a poet. Is maybe, it that? Maybe. Or maybe he's just describing the misery of not being able to experience it fully. What I get from that is that in that last stanza, there's uh, four options of questions of... Yeah. Shall, must I be content with discontent? Shall I ask the day's end? Shall I let all go? Shall I, you know... So that Robert Frost's critique of him of mm. indecision is mm. he's very questioning of mm. where he should go, how he should feel, mm. whether it's the right thing to make a decision about that thing. And who's to say something's right? That's what I never understand with him. He's a-religious, right? He's not religious at all. No. Hates religion. Yeah. So who, 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 is, who is questioning his decisions other than him? Tortuous, isn't it? When asked why he had joined the army and was going to fight, he lifted up, oh sorry, he bent down and picked up a clump of earth and said, this, this is what I'm fighting for. Meaning England. 
some little old clod. No, I think he meant the earth, the elemental soil. Oh, okay. The earth doesn't belong to men. Men belong to the earth. And that's where you're all going to end up in the end, isn't it? We're all going to be food for worms. In the sod. Anyway, that was the nice way to end. Oh, well, I think it's an appropriate way to end with this particular poet. Yeah. He's taking a right. spectacular view. Fantastic journey. And feeling a bit sad. Yeah. But spring is coming. Say goodbye to the chiff chaff on Copleston Hill. If indeed it was a chiff chaff, can you can you do one more impression for me? Chiff chaff, chiff chaff. Thank you. Chiff chaff, chiff chaff. I'm going to miss those impressions. Yeah. Well, we're leaving. We're leaving the road behind to say goodbye to Edward Thomas and welcome in spring. Mm. But we have some thank yous to say first. Obviously, we have to be grateful for the uh, uh, the coming of spring. Yes. Uh, uh, maybe we should be joining the local Morris dance group. We should. Uh, we also want to say thank you for our, our Basie Loop uh, intro. Yes, it's a, it's a tune called Trebek's Lament, and it's by the artist Learning Music, and uh, you can find it on the Free Music Archive. In the first part, you heard the song Adelstrop by Little Machine. Thanks to my friend Wall, who was the singer on that. Oh, okay. um, and uh, Little Machine are a fantastic band who put, basically put poems to music. I don't think they're active anymore. They were active until a few years ago. There's a strong whiff of prog in the second half of that. It's quite proggy. Obviously, big tick from me. Uh, But that was Adelstrop by Little Machine. Uh, And you also heard in the second part, The Rite of Spring, obviously, by Igor Stravinsky. We didn't actually point out that uh, The Rite of Spring came out in 1913 when he was writing this book. Clever clever of you to do that. First performance in Paris. So we had a couple of bits. Well, they had a riot. Uh, that was the uh, performance from 1951, you heard. The L'Orchestre de la Suisse Romande, uh, conducted by Ernest Ansemé. It was the, the earliest listenable version I could find. It was an archive. Oh, well done. So you do know a bit about French culture, even though you didn't know when Proust was published? Uh, no, I didn't know when Proust was published. Mm. Never read it. Not well, interested. Not. Uh, Stravinsky's not French either. Um, it he performed quite a lot of his works <laughs> in Paris, mate. So I've got two things, two two speech readings. You heard Robert Frost himself reading Two, two Roads. Marvellous. Uh, and you also heard, remarkably, Helen Thomas herself uh, talking about her husband. Uh, she was aged 90, speaking in 1967, and it's on the Cardiff University Special Collections and Archives Edward Thomas 100 exhibition, which uh, Good I will find. put a link, f- a link for to our Patreon subscribers. Yes, you can, if you, you can find it on, uh, on YouTube if you search for Helen Thomas. Uh, speaking you'll find it there Mm. so uh, that were all the thank yous Um, next time we are we're off to the west country again right yes we are we're we're going down to uh, um, Dartmouth yeah and we're going on to the moor we are well we're going from the moor down to Dartmouth yes we're following a river a river can you guess which one (laughs) with those (laughs) those (laughs) there's a few clues there aren't there yeah but it's more poetry that's More what poetry. we're doing. We're doing a poetry trilogy. Yeah, so if you, if you don't like poetry, you're Well, in we've trouble. done a book that's not actually a poetry, or, the, or is it? Oh. And we're moving to a book that is actually poetry. Yes. Without a question, it's poetry. It absolutely is poetry. Uh, so, so come, come with there. us to, the, to Dartmoor and enjoy more poetry. And if think... you don't like poetry, you have no soul. <laughs> wow. Punchy. Okay. 
Well, I think I'd like to play us out with Adelstrop because uh, oh, we need clips from it. We'll have it all, we'll have it all play out. How many out. times are you going to play this track? Well, I love it. Well, funny enough, I did do a cover version of, uh, of an Edward Thomas poem back in the day. Did yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, it was rubbish. But nobody recorded it. <laughs> no, no. And the rest of the band said, what do you want to do that for? Hi.